Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Fizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. For the 98th episode of our podcast, yes, episode 100 will be published next Monday, I interviewed Greg Rays, Chief Innovation Officer at RightPoint. Greg founded Ray's Labs right when the mobile revolution was starting to take shape. The firm worked very closely with lots of companies and helped them build out their app or mobile presence. Companies like Runkeeper, Rulala, Care.com, and many others. Under his leadership, Ray's Labs continued to grow and expand to the point where the company was acquired by RightPoint in 2017. And in his current role as Chief Innovation Officer, he is responsible for building the culture of innovation throughout RightPoint and working with clients to help them digitally transform their businesses using design and innovation thinking. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like Greg's background before starting Ray's Labs, including what his time at Microsoft taught him, the full background story of Ray's Labs, a deep dive into the early years of mobile and how customers started to adopt a mobile-first strategy, the details on RightPoint and its future growth plans, advice for founders trying to build a successful service-based business, plus a lot more. Okay, quick side note. It has been far too long since VentureFizz has hosted our own event. Well, that is finally changing. Last week, we announced a new event, which is taking place on May 30th at Acquia's offices in Boston. For this event, we are turning our popular leader series into a live interactive event. You'll get a chance to hear some of the inspirational stories firsthand from an amazing group of women. Tickets are only $10, and a portion of the proceeds will be donated to the Boston chapter of Women Who Code. You can register on Eventbrite, and a special thank you to Acquia for hosting. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Greg. Greg, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. So here's a, a fun fact that our audience might not know. Uh, so Greg Ray's and his company Ray's Labs was actually uh, a, a very kind group that brought VentureFizz under their own umbrella. So Greg had this great mobile accelerator called Accelerate, I think it was called? Yeah, that's right. That's right. We, uh, we put together an accelerator when we moved into our space here at uh, 50 Milk Street in Boston, and we wanted to invite some of the local companies that were influential in the tech community to join us. Uh, we had a number of startups apply as well and, and really help uh, foster innovation in our community. So we were fortunate to be part of that first kind of cohort of companies where we're able to hang out at Ray's Labs and obviously uh, very grateful for all your advice and, and lots of uh, time and obviously the resources that Ray's Labs gave us. Yeah, well, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure VentureFizz could not be as successful as it was if it weren't <laughs> for that experience. But no, it was, it was a lot of fun. And, and uh, I think for, for us and certainly for lots of other companies, just kind of getting out into the community and bringing new ideas uh, inside the walls of your organization uh, really adds as much to the organization as it does uh, help the startups that are involved as well. Yeah, and there was another company, uh, Ray Gravity, that was part of that cohort too, right? Yeah, uh, Ray Gravity, uh, I think they're now called Own Up, uh, was part of that cohort. They went through Techstars and uh, have been successful and, uh, you know, kind of on, continuing on their journey uh, in, in growing as a startup. So it's, it's just fantastic to see companies really start from, uh, and I think they came to us literally with nothing. I mean, they, they were just two guys with an idea and uh, building um, uh, lending company, mortgage company, uh, you know, re really from nothing, raising funds, going through the entire product rounds. And, uh, you know, that, that's really what fuels me is watching new ideas get born and uh, put out into the world. 
Well, let's rewind the clock a bit. So where did you grow up? What were you like as a kid? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I, uh, I grew up in the Boston area. I um, uh, was pretty nerdy, uh, like computer science, uh, like design, and, and I'd always studied both um, uh, elements of, uh, you know, the arts and humanities, whether that be uh, music or um, uh, or design and typography and things like that and have a mix of computer science and uh, programming and things like that. And so mixing those two things was really important for me. Uh, ended up going to school in uh, the area at Tufts University um, where I kind of continued that track, uh, mixing um, some the uh, design elements. Uh, I worked at the school newspaper there, The Observer, um, uh, with uh, some of the computer science work. So uh, actually writing software to publish that newspaper online and figuring out all the intricacies around um, online publishing and things like that. Uh, ended up working at Microsoft after college for a number of years on a little operating system called Windows XP. And then uh, I started my own business after Microsoft. And um, uh, that's kind of how, how it got started. So Microsoft's obviously a massive company. So, so what, what did you actually do there? Like what's, like, so I was uh, a product manager on uh, the operating system design and we were trying to refresh the look and feel of the operating system. So uh, what ended up being um, uh, kind of the uh, bright colored green hills and the start button and those elements. So I was working on all the look and feel, the, t the icon iconography, uh, the graphics, uh, you know, and that, that really cut across everything from Internet Explorer to, uh, you know, the, the backs of the cards on Solitaire. So uh, really cu cutting the gamut. And what do you think that experience taught you, you know, just working for the, the big tech giant Microsoft? I mean, it was, it was really, uh, it taught me two things that I kind of carried for a long time. One was uh, how to hire great people. And I think that's, that was really fundamental when I started my business because uh, I really said, you know, the people who I hire, I want them to be at that level and, you know, world-class, uh, whether it's designers, engineers, product people, I want to be really putting a stamp out there of quality. Um, you know, and the other is kind of the unified philosophy around user experience and design. So um, user experience wasn't a, a term that I had known or heard about. And uh, Microsoft at the time had a user experience team that was really thinking holistically about usability and design and how to make software that was easier and friendlier. You know, at the time, I think people really thought of Microsoft as the evil empire. Um, but you know, having seen it from the inside, there was a lot of thought and care put into how the software and technology was developed and how it could be easily used by people who are either visually impaired or elderly or young. And, you know, how do we design universal software? I think that was really something that I was like, that's pretty, pretty cool. And I've incorporated that into a lot of the work that we've done. Now, you went off to start your own company. Do you think you always had that kind of entrepreneurial bug? To, to go off and do something on your own? Uh, I think so. I mean, my, my dad was an entrepreneur. He, he started a couple of companies as well. And so uh, I think uh, there was certainly that, that itch of, uh, hey, maybe I want to uh, follow in those footsteps and try to, try to put my own shingle out there. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I toyed around with a number of ideas. Um, you know, I, I knew it was software-related in some way. I didn't set out to make a services company. 
um, we actually spent the first couple of years of uh, my business building photo sharing software and software in the, the photography space. Um, so uh, we built some gallery software, we built some photo sharing software, and um, you know ended up pivoting and, and services ended up being a really, uh, really good place for us. We were actually very fortunate that um, you know Steve Jobs held up the iPhone uh, when he did because we ended up uh, kind of pivoting some of our services work directly into that, and that ended up being uh, a space that no one else was in. Uh, so in the same way that uh, in the 90s, the dot-com bubble was everything web, uh, you know, we happened to be in a good spot um, as a small business when mobile came around, and we really rode that wave as well. Now, the photo sharing, so I'm always fascinated by early beginnings of companies. So uh, was this photo sharing, was this like a, like a, a Shutterfly? Was it a Flickr or was it more like an Instagram? Like what, what, what were you envisioning then? What so it? it was kind of a mix between, uh, I would say, Flickr and Picasa. And so uh, Picasa was kind of a desktop piece of software and it was pretty sophisticated, but it wasn't really oriented around sharing. Uh, and uh, tools like Flickr were very oriented on sharing, but they were web-based products, so they weren't particularly dynamic. And so we, we were building a desktop-based product uh, that had a very large sharing component to it. It was, um, again, s still, uh, in my mind, it was a very cool product, very, very exciting, interesting. We just, um, it was the, the timing was wrong. We weren't able to uh, get that product out there. We, we were building a desktop product before there was an app store. Uh, and so ultimately it was, it was the wrong product for the wrong time. Yeah. No, I'm always fascinated by those early, early stories of technology that just wasn't the right market fit based on timing. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Now you, so you also started your company, was it 2001? Uh, yeah, I mean, I loosely started it in 2001. It wasn't officially incorporated until 2003. I'd left Microsoft around uh, end of 2001 and was kind of dabbling from 2001 to 2003, um, incorporated in 2003, and then we really hit our stride uh, right around 2007, 2008 when the iPhone was launched. And what, what I always you know, thought was fascinating is you know, entrepreneurs that bootstrap their companies. Right. So starting a company from nothing to building it, growing it to obviously hitting scale. So, so what were the, the early years like with Raise Labs, you know, before, you know, you kind of really hit the stride with the iPhone launch? Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it was a lot of work. I mean, uh, I, uh, there was a coffee shop. Uh, I, I used to live in a neighborhood in Boston called Coolidge Corner. Uh, which was in Brookline, and I would essentially go to the coffee shop every day. Um, you know, it's either a Starbucks or Pete's day, and uh, my my wife could always tell which one I went to because the coffee smells different. And um, <laughs> honestly, it was just kind of uh, it, it was making it work. So you know, I only had a couple of clients at the time. Um, you know, I was doing both the software. Uh, and the design portion, I didn't have any employees in the early days. And so, you know, I'd have conversations with the clients, figure out what they needed, whether it was a website or a new user interface design or a new, you know, uh, a new screen, a new whatever. Um, and then I'd, you know, plug away and, and get to work and make it happen. And so it was uh, just grinding uh, to a certain extent for, for a number of years. At a certain point, 
I had built enough reputation and enough uh, solid clients that I could start to uh, get my first employees. And that was extraordinarily nerve wracking just because having not had employees, you know, your first employee, you're automatically growing your business a hundred percent. All of a sudden it's not just your own mouth to feed. Like you have, um, you know, a new employee and now they have expectations on, well, what are the benefits and what are we doing here? And, uh, as soon as you have an employee, then, uh, all of a sudden working out of your apartment or working out of a coffee shop doesn't work anymore. And then you're like, okay, I guess I need office space. So, um, you know, I always tell entrepreneurs, that um, you know, you're constantly learning, and that's actually true as your business grows. That as we went from one person to two to four to eight, you know, each of those doubling transitions means that you have to relearn pretty much everything about your business. You know, how you operate, how you scale, how you manage, how you communicate. Um, you know, the techniques for communication for managing a four person team are different than an eight person team or different than a 16 person team. You know, you can, you know, delegate certain things at certain sizes, which are harder to delegate or require other types of management techniques as you grow. So it's constantly learning and evolving. And um, obviously it's a big challenge, but it's a lot of fun as well. Now, before the iPhone launch, were you doing anything on mobile? Like, was there, you know, things that were being built on more of the, flip phones or yeah we i mean we had dabbled a little bit there was uh we had done some prototypes on windows mobile uh which actually you know a lot of people credit apple with being the first smartphone that was touchscreen had apps but it's just not true um there's plenty of plenty of mobile devices that were touchscreen that had apps uh they just didn't get the ui and the user experience right um so we dabbled with um uh some hewlett packard uh, small portables, Palm Pilot, uh, we'd played around with a little bit. Um, and so we had built some prototypes. In fact, some of the first apps uh, uh, me and my co-founder had built were GPS tracking apps on a Windows mobile phone. And that was actually what led us to uh, having some of the early conversations with RunKeeper, which ended up being one of our first apps that we helped launch. Um, and, uh, you know, at the time we were dabbling, we were doing a lot of services consulting and, and working with folks and we'd built some prototypes on mobile devices for tracking GPS. And uh, we had uh, stumbled into a conversation with uh, the founder of RunKeeper, Jason Jacobs, who was interested in building a running fitness app. And um, he'd originally wanted to build a website and we had explored the idea of, hey, what if we built this as a mobile app? Um, uh, at the time, uh, you know, the iPhone didn't even have a GPS chip. Uh, it was rumored to have a GPS chip coming up. And we said, hey, let's take a bet on this and build something, be one of the first apps. Uh, and, and that's the nice thing for startups is that you can take those types of risks because you don't have a lot to lose. And so it's just uh, it was great for Runkeeper. It was great for us. And, um, you know, it's kind of the, the start of a new era. Yeah. And obviously, you know, RunKeeper went on to have tremendous success and an acquisition by ASICs. So like, um, what was it like building the, the interface for, you know, this whole new frontier of the iPhone? And then what was the experience like in the app store? Because even though there was apps there, it wasn't, you know, millions of apps like there are now. Yeah. I mean, it was definitely the wild west, uh, you know, 
Apple did not have a lot of guidance. They had some guidance on how to build apps, but uh, they were also very secretive about some of the innards of how to actually build the applications. Uh, there were certainly no real best practices in terms of how to market or how to position applications in the app store. Um, so when we built that application, you know, we uh, designed it based on the applications that we knew existed. And so, uh, you know, I designed it in Photoshop, uh, tried to model it after some of the screens I'd seen on other applications. Um, and then when we put it out in the app store, it was a lot of experimentation. Like we really had no idea what we were doing, uh, but that was okay because no one had any idea what they were doing. And so uh, we made a free version. We made a pro version. We priced it at $10. We changed the price to $5. We put ads in it. We removed ads from it. And so there's a lot of playing around to see what the model was going to be because um, frankly, people didn't know. Um, you know, was it going to be ad-driven? Was it going to be subscription-based? You know, what tools were going to be interesting for folks? Um, and so there was a lot of experimentation, a lot of play, um, which, which made it uh, both challenging and fun. Now, wasn't the original location awareness technology in the iPhone, it was Skyhook that was... Yeah, so, so uh, Skyhook Wireless was doing uh, Wi-Fi triangulation um, and then... Uh, that was actually what, what led to a lot of the rumors uh, because the Wi-Fi triangulation was okay, but it wasn't great. Uh, and so it would help you get an initial GPS lock, but it wasn't particularly accurate. And so um, we had to actually do a lot of filtering in uh, apps uh, to prevent it from getting that fake Wi-Fi GPS lock because it would screw up your speed and you know you'd think you were running faster than superman from uh one cell tower to another cell tower and people my, would just recorded my personal best awesome yes. yeah exactly we, we would get all sorts of weird things where people would get superman speeds and then uh, we also had one where people would get negative speed and so mm -hmm. someone was running at negative speed we couldn't figure out how that was possible it turned out that uh, as someone ran over the top of a hill, their cell phone would connect to a different tower and the towers have the time synchronization was off and it was off by like negative a minute. And so all of a sudden you're going negative speed. So there's all sorts of weird bugs that we needed to solve that, you know, frankly, we had never thought could even exist prior to that. Yeah, it's so fun to look back and see how things have changed over the past... 12 years or so. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. Now, so you were obviously working with lots of other companies too, like uh, Rulala and Care.com. So what were some of the other you know, major? Yeah, I mean, we, we've worked with, uh, I think to date, uh, over 100 different brands and companies across a really wide spectrum of mobile applications, e-commerce products, uh, lots of very large retailers, uh, consumer product companies, um, I mean, insurance companies, auto companies, you name it. Um, you know, at the end of the day, each each product is kind of unique. And I think it's been exciting to watch uh, mobile really come into its own. Uh, I think, in, as I said, in the beginning, it was very much the Wild West and people really didn't know what you could do with these devices and, and how they would be used. And mobile applications have really matured. Uh, and so you're really seeing very sophisticated, thoughtful applications and, um, you know, the amount of experiences that people can really have on their mobile phones today is just mind boggling. Like you can 
do everything. You can pay your taxes, you can do your payroll, all your banking apps, all your insurance apps, you know, uh, including new applications that, uh, you know, you know, five, 10 years ago, never would have existed. Things like Lyft and Uber, uh, being able to build entire new business models that just didn't exist. Uh, I think the entire gig economy was driven largely by uh, you know, the mobile applications that we're seeing. And when did you finally see that transitional shift of working with companies that were like, we need a mobile first strategy? Uh, maybe, uh, roughly five years, five, six years ago, we started to see, uh, I mean, we were, the first wave, uh, was really a catch up, uh, wave and people were seeing that mobile applications were out there and some of the competitors to their, uh, business may have put out a mobile application. So there was a little bit of a, Hey, we should be there too. And let's catch up. Um, but then, uh, you know, as the market got a little more mature, there was a, okay, well, maybe we should be thinking about our next product mobile first. Um, and what, how would we rethink our entire business if we weren't bound by the things that, you know, are traditionally desktop? Uh, again, not everything makes sense as a mobile app. Um, and, you know, that, that was actually one of the reasons why we went through the acquisition a couple of years ago is that we wanted to be more, uh, diverse as uh, as an agency, we we think it's important to be thinking mobile, but we think it's equally as important to think web as well. More and more of our clients were thinking, you know, how do we be where our customers need to be when they need to be there, and that means you really need to think omni-channel. And sometimes I need a really really strong web solution, and sometimes I need a really strong mobile solution. So that was, that was a, a important transition over the last couple of years as well. Well, you just touched upon um, the acquisition. So RightPoint acquired Raise Lab. So how did that all come together? So uh, this was about uh, two and a half, three years ago. Uh, we just started to see a shift in the market uh, that, uh, you know, we had grown, uh, Raise Labs had grown to around 70, 80 folks. Uh, and so we were, you know, not a huge agency, but starting to be sizable from a mobile perspective. And when we started to have conversations with uh, customers and clients that were interested in a mobile app, uh, they were typically interested in a holistic solution. They were looking for not just mobile, but they were looking for someone to help them with a larger business problem. Uh, and so uh, that would mean that sometimes we're losing to a consultancy that had more uh, strategic consulting background. Sometimes we would uh, lose to a company that had uh, more web technology uh, and some mobile technology. And so we really wanted a larger playing field. Um, you know, I've been running Raise Labs for uh, 12, 13 years. So I was looking for a personal change of pace as well. And so it ended up being a really good uh, marriage where RightPoint had a lot of very diverse, uh, both marketing experience, strategic consulting experience and web experience. And uh, Raise Labs was able to complement that with very deep, uh, mobile application experience, very deep product experience as well. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's been, uh, I think we're coming up on in a year and a half. Uh, so it's been a good transition. I kind of moved into um, uh, chief innovator role, which really means, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about how to push new technologies, new innovations, uh, new methodologies across the business. Um, 
lately I've been spending a lot of my time thinking about healthcare and how uh, healthcare and medicine can be disrupted by new technologies and some of the things that we're seeing both in mobile and web and HIPAA and voice and, and all sorts of things as well. So it's exciting. So, so what are, are you thinking about as it relates to healthcare? Like what's next in terms of what you're thinking there? Yeah, so we're, we're doing a couple interesting things. We, uh, as an agency, we got certified for uh, 13485 uh, software development, which means that we can develop medical applications and products, products that go through FDA trials. And we're seeing a shift in the marketplace for uh, what's called software as medical devices. And so you could think of uh, traditional medical devices may have been things like a stethoscope or an instrument or, you know, a blood pressure cuff or things like that. As devices have gotten more sophisticated and have more technology, uh, they are looking more and more like apps uh, and more and more like software. And as uh, these devices look more and more like software, more of that actually ends up being either a mobile product or digital software product. And so uh, these larger companies that have traditionally done just either devices or large pharma companies who have done traditional molecule development are starting to think about digital therapeutics and how can we create digital medicines. So um, it's a really exciting area. We're having, uh, we have a couple of clients that we're already doing work within that space, but we're uh, really seeing it as a blossoming field. And that must be a competitive advantage having that, uh, you know, ability to create those apps with the FDA regulations. Yeah, we're, we're, we think it's something kind of unique in the agency space. Most uh, software development agencies or product agencies will kind of dabble in, in this stuff, but they don't necessarily develop um, uh, to the rigor that can actually go through that process. So, yeah, it's, been, uh, it's, it, it's definitely been an advantage. So what, what else is, is next? What else are you thinking about outside of healthcare? Like when I was uh, at your offices, you know, many, many years ago, you were the first ones that had, you know, uh, VR. What was it called? Was it Oculus? And yeah, VR. Oh, no, but it was the, uh, the the Google version, the the cardboard. What was it? Yeah, Google cardboard. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, cardboard we're we're, uh, we're always playing with new technology, uh, and so the, there's always toys in the office of things that that we see coming down the pike. I think um, uh, AR and VR continues to be. Uh, really popular and we're seeing a lot of interest. I think voice applications are getting more sophisticated. And so we're seeing more and more interest in uh, Alexa applications. Uh, in, in like company settings, like in the enterprise? Yep. Yeah, wow. so uh, Alexa just um, released uh, some of their business tools. And so you can deploy business applications within an enterprise, which I think is interesting. Uh, we're also seeing uh, Amazon released uh, applications for, um, that are HIPAA compliant as well. Um, you know, so we, we happen to work on one of the six applications that, that Amazon released that was HIPAA compliant. Uh, and so we, we think that that's going to be a trend as well, where more and more of these voice devices are in hospital rooms where you can just use your voice to either ask for a nurse or adjust the bed or turn on the TV or ask for water, things like that. And so um, as the price of these devices continues to drop, you'll see more and more ubiquity of them being used in different settings, which is exciting. What about in the world of cryptocurrency and blockchain? Is that kind of an area you guys are focused on too? Uh, we've looked at it. We, we've had a couple conversations with folks. I'm, uh, as a personal angel, angel investor, I'm, I'm invested in one company, but it's something we're monitoring. I think it, it's, it's, um, 
there's a number of companies that kind of dive in and, and start building blockchain uh, software without really understanding the end customer benefit. And I think that's one of the challenges that that blockchain and crypto have. It's still a little bit complex to explain the benefit. Uh, I think there are some interesting companies that are are uh, finding benefits where blockchain can solve something that otherwise is difficult to solve. Um, but there's a lot of um, a lot of confusion in the market as well, where there's kind of a lot of buzzword bingo, uh, where people will say, "Hey, blockchain or crypto or you know you know everything is being put on that." So it, it's really finding problems that really align with that as. Uh, something that's uniquely beneficial. Now, what advice would you give to other uh, entrepreneurs who are looking to build a successful services business? You know, you scaled it from yourself to 80 or so people. So what advice would you give to others that are trying to do the same? Just focus on the quality of the the work that you're doing. Um, You know, ultimately, uh, I think the thing that made Ray's lab successful uh, and continues to make RightPoint successful is, uh, you know, A, our people, uh, you know, th- there's really no, you know, the only thing that separates a, any kind of services agency from any other is the people. And so focusing on the people and then obviously the the work that those people do. And if you get those two things right, you'll have a successful services agency. And, um, you know, if you hire the wrong people or you don't do quality work, um, you know, you, it's, it's not going to go anywhere. I, I think the rest of it follows, you know, by hiring great people and doing great work, we ended up getting a lot of recommendations and referrals and a lot of word of mouth. Um, Again, there's no substitute for that. Um, That really helped us uh, through the good times and through the hard times as well. You know, agencies go up and down based on, you know, just the the tides and the shifts in the market. Uh, But having done great work and having great people really helped us uh, grow through, through the thick and the thin. Now, one of the trickier parts of running a services business is managing uh, utilization, complementing that with sales, right? Your sales pipeline and making sure that you have the proper resources to deliver, yet not overhire where you have people on the bench. So how did you manage that in the early days? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, that's always a challenge in the services business, as you said, like uh, this uh, gentleman, uh, Jeff McMahon, who um, ran an agency in Boston that was also acquired by RightPoint a couple of years ago. He has a quote that I like. He said, uh, you know, the pendulum doesn't spend a lot of time in the middle. Uh, and I think it's really about calibration. You know, when, uh, when business is busy and you're out there trying to find talent, um, you know, you have to keep a pulse on, you know, how much business you have and how much visibility you have into the future. So uh, I don't have a magic, you know, uh, a magic wand to solve that one for services companies. I think even the largest services companies, the Deloitte's and the Accenture's and, you know, you name it, they have that challenge as well, where you kind of have to have, uh, you know, one month, three months, six months, 12 month visibility into where you think the business is going and just making sure you're managing uh, both the business side and the talent side. Um, you know, yeah, that's, that's the short of it. It's uh, paying attention to where the pendulum is currently swinging, making sure you're not overcompensating in one way or the other. Well, it's great to hear when a acquisition takes place and it's been a positive experience of, you know, continued growth of a company that's, you know, has a significant presence in Boston. So what's the future plans as far as the growth of the Boston office for RightPoint? 
Well, we are uh, firing on all cylinders. So certainly uh, anyone in the Boston area who's uh, in the mobile space and looking for work or in the product space, I think we have 15 to 20 job openings or something like uh, something crazy like that. But uh, we're growing across the country. And that's the exciting thing for me that uh, I couldn't have done uh, just as Ray's Labs. We now have offices in uh, Chicago and LA. Uh, we had our Oakland office, Denver, Dallas, Detroit, uh, a lot of D's, uh, Atlanta. So there's lots of new uh, offices uh, that we get to impact through the great work that we do, which is exciting. And uh, again, it gives us a bigger canvas to attract some of the world's best talent as well. That's right. So what do you like to do outside of work? Uh, so I like to go sailing. Uh, I also like uh, to go snowboarding. So depending on uh, the warmth of the weather, uh, I've recently started to learn uh, and teach myself to kiteboard. Uh, so, wow. Where are you doing that? Uh, so I've been uh, learning. Uh, I went took a trip to uh, Grand Cayman. And so oh, I took wow. uh, lessons down there. It was a lot of fun. So is that as crazy as it looks? <laughs> It's uh, it's pretty crazy. It's it's a lot of fun. It's it's similar to snowboarding and sailing. So that's kind of the, the cross between the two other sports I normally like. So uh, you got some some of the wind and some of the some of the board part. Uh, combine them together, you get kite surfing. Yeah, it looks like a lot of fun to try. I'm sure it must be a little bit tricky to get the hang of it. Like you know anything, I guess. Yeah, it's similar to snowboarding. It's kind of uh, at a certain point it clicks and then, then you got it and then it's fun. But until then, you end up spending a lot of time on your face. Right. And then when you catch that major air for the first time, it must be like, oh, my God, I got to do that again. Well, I'm not, I'm not at the jumping phase yet. I think okay. the, the, what you see on YouTube videos right. who are uh, you know, at the next level, that, that's kind of like you learn to skateboard and you're not immediately Tony Hawk. <laughs> you're not on a half pipe. I can skateboard. I can stay on the board. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, Greg, thanks so much for taking the time for sharing you know, your background and obviously the great things you've done with Ray's Labs and obviously the things you're continuing on to do with RightPoint. And uh, as you mentioned, uh, RightPoint is hiring. So if you're interested in checking out their job opportunities, you can go to their biz page, which is venturebiz.com backslash RightPoint for all the openings. Greg, thanks again for your time. Thanks, Keith. Appreciate it. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.